This episode of the EdSurge podcast is brought to you by the Elementary Education Program at Emporia State University. The online master's in elementary education program at Emporia State is designed for career changers interested in becoming elementary teachers. Learn more at emporia.edu slash grad. That's emporia.edu slash grad. Should colleges be giving students a partial refund on tuition these days since their campuses were forced to shift to online teaching for the COVID-19 pandemic? Students around the country say yes, they want some money back. And their calls are getting louder. Petition movements at some 200 campuses are calling for partial refunds of tuition. And in most cases, they're asking for 50% back. And some student protesters are now filing class action lawsuits to try to force colleges to return part of tuition money. John Donners is a student leading a petition effort at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where more than 8,000 students have signed on. The school has about 21,000 undergraduates, so 8,000 is, is a big proportion of that. Their demand is simple. Since the university typically charges less for online courses than face-to-face ones, the students just want a refund for the difference. And they want refunds of fees that paid for facilities like gyms and other amenities they just can't use during the lockdown. For John, the student I talked to, the logic is simple. It really isn't the same quality of an education from my experience and the experience of many other students. This isn't what I and many other students signed up for. It's not the university's fault that they had to go online, and I think that was a wonderful step that they took. But there's a reason that we choose to go to UIC as opposed to an all-online university, and we're not getting a large part of that. And it's, I believe it's obvious that the university justifies many of their costs because of this in-person experience. It's very clear from the literature that they have, from all of their materials that they do to try and convince students to come to UIC as opposed to other institutions. Because at the end of the day, we are paying for a service. And when you don't receive the service that you're promised, you should be given some sort of a fair uh, either refund or compensation for the difference between that lack of service. But is it that simple? Is college just like any other service, like dry cleaning or going to a restaurant? What are students paying for exactly? And what are colleges really selling? Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, an editor here at Ed Surge, and for this week's episode, we dive into this debate over tuition refunds during this sudden period of mass online education during COVID-19. Because these days, it's simply not safe to do what we all took for granted just a couple months ago, like sit in the back of a lecture hall with 300 other students. Officials at the University of Illinois at Chicago don't plan to refund any tuition. As the chancellor there, Michael Amarides, said in a statement, since UIC continues to teach all classes remotely, we have not considered a partial refund of tuition. However, we are considering a partial refund of the fees for interrupted services, recreation, student centers, student programming, athletics, etc., as well as some lab fees associated with specific courses. The move to giving back some of these facilities fees does admit that students are missing out on much of the campus experience, um, like going to the gym or student events. We contacted UIC and asked for someone to be interviewed for this podcast, but they declined. 
The partial refund on fees hasn't satisfied John Donner's and other students pushing for tuition refunds, though. They keep going back to the argument that the online education is just not as good. But is the remote learning of the past few weeks significantly worse than the classroom teaching that was going on before COVID-19? And if it is worse, is it 50% worse? Even by the logic of this student protest, what's the right compensation? I reached out to a professor at the University of Pennsylvania who studies higher education, Jonathan Zimmerman. He wrote a forthcoming book, actually, called Amateur Hour, about the history of college teaching in America. Frankly, um, Jeff, I don't think we know enough about how much students were learning under the face-to-face model to calculate uh, what their, you know, alleged loss might be under this new model. Um, Indeed, I would argue it's precisely one of the, um, uh, I would argue, least defensible aspects of higher education, which has been our longstanding reluctance to try to figure out how much people have learned, that's actually and ironically become the best, quote, defense against the tuition demands. It's precisely, it's precisely because we don't know how much people have been learning prior to this time that it's quite difficult, if not impossible, to figure out what sort of drop-off there might have been with the introduction of online. Zimmerman has looked into the history of online education. And he says that typically colleges have not used it to build programs for traditional undergrads or as a replacement for face-to-face classes. Their goal has usually been to attract new students who could not get to a campus or afford traditional college. Historically, the machines have been to bring in newcomers, people that had formerly not been served by the institution. Um, And I think Online education before this moment has reflected that pattern. So if you look at elite schools like where I teach, there's very little online instruction. But if you go to the community college world or especially to the for-profit world, you find that often most of the classes are taught online. Indeed, I would argue up until this moment, face-to-face instruction was fast becoming a privilege right? If you had enough wherewithal, you could actually be in the same room with another human being. And if you didn't, you had to do the online thing. What's unique about our moment is everyone's been thrown into the same pool. Uh, And suddenly everyone has to do online, including people at the elite schools. And that's important because lo and behold, that's also the places where you see these petitions from students saying we should get a, a tuition discount because this isn't as good. It's true that the most aggressive student actions have come from some of the country's most selective and elite universities. Students at half a dozen colleges, including Brown University, Duke, Vanderbilt, and USC, have filed class action lawsuits against their universities. These complaints allege breach of contract for making this switch from in-person to online instruction. As the complaint against Brown states, quote, while students enrolled and paid defendant for a comprehensive academic experience Defendant instead offers plaintiff and the class members something far less. A limited online experience presented by Google or Zoom, void of face-to-face faculty and peer interaction, separated from program resources and barred from facilities vital to study. Plaintiff and the class members did not bargain for such an experience. But not all students asking for tuition refunds are doing so because of the online teaching issue. At the University of Chicago, which is one of the most expensive private colleges in the country, students are calling for a 50% tuition reduction and for greater transparency by the university in why things cost so much. Their main argument 
is that the well-endowed university was charging too much even before the pandemic. Here's how one of the student leaders at the University of Chicago, Julia Addy, put it. It's not about the like online classes, although those two definitely, um, you know, demonstrate hardships for students who are in vastly different time zones, again, international students or um, students with disabilities have had a very hard time with them. But I think also that like in many aspects of our country, like this crisis is highlighting problems that did already exist. Um, So for example, with rapidly changing financial circumstances, the university financial aid system cannot keep up because it uses tax returns that are based on uh, two years, that they're two years back. Um, So this has been a problem historically for some students who couldn't get a financial aid reduction, but now as I think almost one fifth of Americans have applied for um, uninsurance, that is affecting students much, much um, more than it has in previous quarters. We're also seeing at some institutions, a couple of them now, where the students have actually filed class action lawsuits, not just a petition. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something you've thought of? or? For sure. So we are actually in direct contact with multiple firms who are willing to represent us. um, And we're actually doing those kind of introduction interviews today with those firms. Um, The main thing that we're taking into consideration is we want to make sure that if we do do a lawsuit, um, our narrative is not changing. And what we mean by that is that it's not focused on the quality of education, but really focused on students who can't pay and marginalized students um, so that we don't have a campaign that started because we were concerned about marginalized students and then becomes a kind of my online classes are bad. That's not what we want this campaign to be about. So that's why we're a bit hesitant about the lawsuit. Julia is a senior at the university, and she's been involved in several other protests during her time there. She compares this student action to a rent strike. And so she and hundreds of other students are now on a tuition strike, refusing to pay until they get a meeting with the administration to discuss their demands. It's an idea that Julia's twin sister, who's also a student protester on campus, first thought up. She um, came up with this idea. You know, there's been a huge rent strike in Hyde Park, and she was like, what if we do a tuition strike? Um, And this really came from the fact that so many of our friends have really been left in the dust, um, who parents have lost jobs, um, you know, families have lost loved ones, including myself, um, and then just faced with... Um, having to take a full course load online, even if I have enough credits to graduate, um, and having to pay another $20,000 this quarter um, really just didn't seem right. Um, But more than that, with the skyrocketing unemployment, it just didn't seem feasible for a lot of people. And I'm I'm sorry for your loss. I mean, this is a tough time. So you were... You were really, you and your sister are really equating it to a rent strike in some ways here. Um, yeah, so I think that obviously there is a reason that we're doing it in this moment, in the here and now, because it's exposing a lot of cracks in our education system. But then there's also the kind of wider questions that are brought up as with a rent strike in some ways, which are, um, you know, like, what have we been paying for? Has it been just? And um, is it okay that students are going into debt over this that will be with them for the rest of their lives? Um, And is it okay, especially from an institution that is a multi-billion dollar institution? You are, you know, really close to graduating. And so are you concerned at all that they could say, okay, well, unless you pay, you're not going to get your diploma. You're not going to be done. 
Um, so that is correct. If I don't pay by um, ninth week of this quarter, then I would not get my diploma. Um, I'm obviously hoping that it does not come to that. Um, so we were pretty confident with our escalation plans and the fact that um, we will be able to negotiate with the university um, and really take, take home some, some wins from this um, before then. After the break, why college leaders say these issues are more complicated. And we look at whether this whole thing is really not about tuition at all. Stay with us. Do you know someone interested in becoming an elementary teacher? Emporia State University's 33-credit-hour elementary education master's program allows individuals to do just that, regardless of their background of study. The coursework is available online, and the clinical classroom experience can be completed at a placement near you, allowing you to earn a master's degree without changing locations. In as little as two years, Emporia students will not only have a master's degree, but they will also be eligible for an elementary education teaching license, depending on their home state's requirements. Send your paras, stay-at-home parents, subs, and anyone else who might be interested to emporia.edu grad to learn more. That address again is emporia.edu grad. Now back to the episode. Jonathan Zimmerman, that UPenn professor who studies higher education, says that it's harder than students think for a college to just hand half of their tuition back from the past quarter or semester. Nothing is free and every discount has to be compensated with something else. So if indeed the kids at Penn and Columbia had to pay less, what that would mean is the institutions would have to compensate for that in some way. So how should they do that? Um, uh, I hope not by firing a sanitation worker or a cafeteria worker. Um, uh, uh, it strikes me that one of the questions that you always have to address if you're talking about any kind of discount is how is that pain going to be spread around? Um, uh, and I don't know the answer to that either. Of course, there's the question of, you know, they have these huge fundraising drives. I, again, like some of the students have raised, well, these endowments are enormous. Right. I, although, you know, that's pretty complicated. It turns out that these endowments all have really interesting, complicated restrictions on them. It's not just like a candy store that you can dip into when you're hungry. Um, but I take their point, right? I mean, some of these institutions, not all, are incredibly well endowed and incredibly over-resourced. But nevertheless, you know, they're also employers of the working class, Right. I mean, you know, in Philadelphia, the city is the biggest employer, and I believe my employer, the University of Pennsylvania, is the second biggest one. And we're talking about the security people, and we're talking about, you know, um, people that work in cafeterias and dormitories and libraries. And, you know, our economies in some of our cities have really shifted to what we call meds and eds. You know, um, that is the, the uh, uh, meds and eds, hospitals and universities are the, are the key employers. Um, uh, uh, Philadelphia used to be a place where you make things, uh, and it's not anymore. It's a place where you go if you're sick or you want to learn. It's a meds and eds place. Uh, and that means, you know, we employ thousands and thousands of people. Um, and that's a real factor or should be in all of these discussions, right? How are we going to take care of those people? Um, and if we start charging less or if fewer students come to us, it's going to be harder for us to pay those people. That's a reality. That's the argument that officials at the U of Chicago are making in their response to student demands. We invited someone from the university to be on this podcast, but they declined. In an email statement by Provost Ka Yi Lee, 
He said that much of the endowment is legally restricted and can't be used for just anything. And he said that giving back tuition would mean, quote, substantial cutbacks in operations, which would hinder the university's ability to provide all of its current educational offerings and to fulfill core research and educational mission, unquote. And he stressed that the University of Chicago is working to make emergency aid available to students in need during the crisis. The university did do one thing recently that the students have been calling for. They froze tuition for next year, rather than raise it slightly, as typically happens. To be clear, university administrators haven't actually met with the protesters, and I think they would probably argue they did that on their own rather than because students asked for it. Nobody, though, seems to be arguing that the online education colleges are doing during the pandemic is as good as face-to-face teaching. In part, that's because it's been thrown together with such haste. But Zimmerman says that online education is often not as good, even in the best of times. The most recent studies suggest that you don't learn as much online as you do face-to-face. Um, obviously, these are huge generalizations. Um, uh, but one of the things we've discovered is that the drop-off is greatest for people that are first-gen students, working-class students, minority students. When I say the drop-off, I mean the drop-off between face-to-face and online. Um, so this speaks to another massive inequality in our system. The less privilege you have in this country, the more likely you are to do online. But within the online world, one of the things we've discovered is the less privilege you have, the less you learn. Um, uh, So, you know, in a just world, it would be more elite people that had to do the online thing and less elite people that had to do the face-to-face thing. Um, uh, But that's, of course, exactly the opposite of how things work. Look, just talk to some of the millions of students that have had to go online this semester. Um, Obviously, again, there's huge variation across institutions and across instructors. But, you know, if you listen to them, they'll tell you it is not the same. Um, There's clearly something that happens in a room where you're together that we can't recapitulate over Zoom. Um, uh, I think we're trying. I think we should keep innovating and keep experimenting. I don't want anybody listening to this podcast to come away thinking that I'm, quote, against online education. At this point, that would be like being against air. You know, I mean, it's here. But you know what? There's good air and bad air. And that's the discussion that we should be having. Like, how can we use this tool in a way that benefits us, especially the least advantaged among us? And how can we avoid using it in ways that don't help or even might harm? Those are the questions. So there's another way to think about what college students are buying with their tuition dollars. The president of Brown University, Christina Paxson, told a reporter for the New York Times recently that, you know, not only are students still learning, but the Brown degree retains its value. And so they're not going to get back tuition. In that way of thinking, maybe the biggest asset that students are paying for is the signaling function of the degree for whatever institution that they graduate from. In other words, the reason to go to Brown is as much about proving to employers that you got into Brown and could finish it than it is about the details of what kind of learning happened there. I ran that argument past Julia Addy, that student activist at UChicago. I think that there's something really interesting going on here that's actually been echoed by the University of Chicago administration as well, where they are basically saying that we are paying them money and they're giving us um, a degree. And that kind of exchange is not the way our campaign sees education. 
From the beginning, our campaign has really rejected the view of education as a commodity and the idea that tuition was just in the first place at this rate at the University of Chicago. So we're not saying that we that we think the value of our degree has decreased. Um, and we're not saying that we think even necessarily that you know, our professors aren't working as hard or we're not getting the same amount out of our classes. I mean, many people would agree with that statement, but this really is about students who are struggling and it's not about the fact that we get a fancy piece of paper that we're paying the same amount for. For her, the issue seems to be more about power and about who can afford to weather this financial storm. I have no doubt that universities are having to make financial changes during this time. Um, But as with the 2008 financial crisis, I'm sure that the University of Chicago will recover and students who have to take on debt will not. And I think that's one of the biggest differences. John Donners, that student from U of Illinois at Chicago, made a similar argument to me. And I think it's also important to recognize that these are massive institutions. The universities have massive amounts of money coming in from the state and federal government. They have uh, massive donations coming in. And the university can choose how they spend their money. And this is a university that has spent a lot of their time recently investing in new buildings and things like that, which I think are wonderful for the campus. But at a time when their students are struggling, I think they need to take a hard look and say, what is most important to spend our money on when they're building these massive, extremely expensive facilities, I think it's important for them to take a step back and say, how can we reallocate money to give the most benefit to the students who are hurting right now? And I don't think that that's the approach that they're taking right now. I think that they're still thinking of it in the sense of how can we continue from where we were going before and pay lip service to what the students desire. But there's something else that struck me in talking to both of these student activists. One of their major demands is actually just to sit down with university leaders and have more of a voice in how institutions are responding to the crisis. Because the students are much more than just a a customer at the university. I often think it's uh, interesting to put in perspective of the students almost being like a shareholder because the students keep the university alive. There would be no university without the students. I ended my conversation with John by talking about what he expects to happen in the fall when classes resume. I mean, it's hard to imagine that somehow COVID-19 will be gone by then and things will be back to normal. And that's when it became clear to me just how much he saw this tuition refund issue as just one issue among kind of a bigger one. Well, as of right now, the U of I system president has said that he expects classes to resume in some capacity on campus. And so, to my understanding, the current, I guess, uh, initial plan is for large classes to be held online and for smaller classes to be held on campus with social distancing enforced. So I guess the idea is that uh, maybe a much smaller class would be in a classroom that would usually house 200 people, but instead it would house 30 so that they can adequately social distance. And I think that it's wonderful that the university is trying to uh, return to normalcy to some extent, but it still doesn't address those classes that will be completely online. And it also doesn't take into account many of the concerns 
that students are feeling about returning to campus in general, because right now we're still in a very uncertain time. There's a massive debate going on nationally about reopening the country and things like that. And so I think that the university needs to make sure that they have the pulse of the students very clearly identified when they make these decisions. And I don't think that they quite are. I don't see enough student influence or student advising in present when they're forming these committees to transition towards the fall. And so I think that they're repeating a lot of the same mistakes that they've been having with this spring semester, because while they've done many important steps, I think that the biggest thing that they continue to miss the mark on is including student voices and actually listening to the students as equals instead of just dictating down to them what they think is best. So these are complicated issues, but this is one of the things that struck me the most. Students want to be in the room where it happens, to quote a line from that musical Hamilton. In that case, all these threats of petitions and strikes and lawsuits are partly an effort to be heard. And it'll be interesting to see if this student movement succeeds in doing that, in changing the level of student involvement at colleges after this crisis. How much online there's going to be after the dust settles is certainly a big concern. And students, they want to be part of deciding that. This has been the EdSurge Podcast. Each week, we bring you interviews and stories about the changing world of education, which is certainly changing a lot during the pandemic. If you like the show, please share it on social media or tell a friend while you're social distancing in the park. I'm excited about some of the episodes we have in the works, so stay tuned and subscribe if you haven't already so you don't miss what's coming. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education. Thanks for listening and be well.